Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Once again, it's a joy to come to God's Word together. We are turning again to 1 Thessalonians, and I encourage you to turn to the end of chapter 2 if you have your Bibles with you. This morning we're going to read a bit of a longer section that I think uh, all belongs together. Uh, In this section really we'll finish up the first half of 1 Thessalonians. There's a distinct uh, shift as we move to chapter 4 next week. So far, if you've been following along with us, Paul has been rejoicing and giving thanks for the Thessalonians' genuine faith, and he's also defended his own ministry to them. And we'll see both of these themes, Paul's joy in the Thessalonians' faith and his defense of his ministry, come back again in our passage this morning. Really, as Paul spends this uh, chunk of scripture, if you will, declaring his desire to be with the Thessalonians and his joy to hear the report of their faith. So if you would follow with me, we're picking up right at the end of chapter 2 and verse 17, and then we'll read right through this short chapter 3 to the end. Beginning in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and may supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is God's word. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for continuing to speak through your word by your spirit, 
strengthen us, encourage us, establish our hearts this morning, we pray for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. As I was preparing this sermon this week and reading this passage, I really found it hard to imagine any words that could more possibly and better express the way we feel in the face of our corona separation than the first words of this passage. Remember what Paul says, verse 17, since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Every phrase of, of this verse rings true to my heart. You know, it has sure felt that we've been torn away from you from a short time. It sure feels that we were torn in person, but not in heart as we continue to think of you and, and pray for you regularly. And we're endeavoring now eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face again, hopefully for many of us on June 7th. But as you think about the people you desire to see during this time, as you think about coming back together again, I wonder if you'd ask yourself, what is it that I want to do when I see people again? Why do I want to be together? What am I looking forward to? And maybe there's a number of things that would pop into our minds. I know as I was thinking about this, some of the things that popped into my mind were eat food together. There's just something about food that tastes better when you're eating it with other people around good conversation. For me, I thought of golf. Now, I know I can golf, but I I can't wait to be together and, and do things like golf and be outside and do these activities. Maybe part of it's just, I can't wait to be together so I don't have to use Zoom again. I feel like every time I see the little square popping up of a Zoom window, I sort of get a little twitch and a little PTSD or something. But as Paul's heart here, as we think of these activities that are swirling in our minds and we think of Paul's heart here, Paul is focused on on something much deeper and richer than the activities that we will do together. And I think if we are honest, there's something deeper that's at the core of our desire to be together as well. And in this section that we've read, in this section of 1 Thessalonians, Paul, as he expresses his longings and his desire to be together, he lays out the nature and the blessing of Christian fellowship. He lays out for us, gives us a picture of what we should long for and how we should care for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. As Paul expresses his desire to be with the Thessalonians in this passage, he gives us three reasons for why he longs to be together. Three statements that I think define for us what the blessing of Christian fellowship is. And Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't state these three things in logical order here. They're, they're woven throughout this passage from his first statement of desire to be with them to his final prayer. And I'd like to, to walk through each of these things in turn. So first of all, Paul mentions and, and longs for his desire to be with the Thessalonians because of his genuine love for them. That's his first reason that he desires to be with them because he loves them and cares for them. And you see this all throughout this passage. It starts right there in verses 17 and 18 as Paul expresses his deep emotion about his absence from the Thessalonians. Even though he's an apostle and they're new converts, Paul refers to them as brothers and expresses a great desire to be with them, arguing that though they are apart physically, they are not apart in heart His heart has been with them all this time. In fact, he uses this word to be torn away from the Thessalonians. And that word to be torn away is actually a word that's used to describe someone who is orphaned, who loses his family 
and is left alone. That's how Paul feels when he talks about the Thessalonians. And while many of us maybe have more technological ways to be in touch during this time, I think we can resonate with this a little bit. That after eight weeks of not being together as a church, there's a way in which we feel orphaned, torn away from our family in Christ. Well, Paul goes on to say that he eagerly endeavored to come to the Thessalonians because of his love and his care for them. He desired and endeavored to come to them, but he was thwarted by Satan. Now, this is an odd phrase. Most of us don't speak this way. You know, I I tried to come to you, but Satan prohibited me or thwarted me. Maybe it even seems incorrect. I mean, surely Satan can't thwart God's plans, can he? And that's, of course, correct, but Satan can thwart our plans, even our good plans. You know, the, the plans of our hearts and the desires of our hearts, even when they're good, even when they're things that would honor the Lord, can be thwarted as Satan works against God and his people. And scripture talks this way all, all the time, and it attributes things and ways that, that Satan can work against God's people as, yes, Satan's real efforts, even though, of course, Satan cannot thwart God's plans. And so we know that, that uh, the things that are, are guided, the way, the way things occur in our lives, they may be Satan's work, but they are also, of course, within God's will for us. Um, but Satan, or, but uh, Paul's point here is that he loves the Thessalonians. He desires to be with them. And only Satan's efforts against them have kept them, him from being with them. All, of course, within God's plan. Paul um, so he clearly lays out his care for the Thessalonians in these verses. He, he states it again in, in chapter 3, verse 6, where Paul mentions that you long to see us just as we long to see you. This, this, uh, this deeply emotional statement of desire to be with the Thessalonians. But Paul's clearest expression of love comes at the end of this passage in chapter 3, verse 12, where Paul prays, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. And so woven all throughout this passage are Paul's statements of his love for the Thessalonians and his desire that together they could, they could be together and increase in their love and care for one another. And I think this may be one of the most clear and simple statements in all of Scripture of the love that should characterize God's people, that our love for each other should increase and abound for one another and for all. Think about those phrases for a second. Paul prays that the Thessalonians' love would increase and abound. Another way to translate this, as John Stott says it, is to increase to the overflowing. I don't know if you've ever um, maybe put a, a garden fountain in your yard. You know, those little, little fountains you can get at, at Lowe's or Home Depot. And if you've ever filled it up for the first time, the fountain goes from being dry to water beginning to fill it and it kind of increases and, and fills till it's full and then it starts overflowing. And the fountain doesn't stop overflowing as long as the source of water continues to be on. And I think that's this, this picture that Paul's painting here, that as we come to know Christ, our hearts are filled and changed with the love of God, by the love of our God who sacrificed his own son for us, of Jesus who lives his life and then gives his life for our salvation. Those who have been saved by Jesus should be so filled with his love for others that we, we are filled up to the point of overflowing, so that no one should be able to come in contact with us without being splashed by the love of God, just like you can't come in contact with the fountain without getting splashed with the water that's overflowing from it. 
Paul then prays that, that the love of the Thessalonians would increase to overflowing for one another and for all. For one another and for all. A Christian's love should abound for his brothers and sisters in Christ so that, so that the church should become a fellowship of, of brothers and sisters, of, of men and women, of children and parents and grandparents who are all dear friends and treasured siblings in Christ, committed to one another's good. It's often, of course, pointed out that the church, even those saved by Christ, is the body of Christ, yes, but still a body that's covered with a fair number of warts. We know that the church is an assembly of sinners, and being filled with the love of Christ is not going to change that uh, immediately. And yet, while we are told to expect, at times, petty disputes and tensions between Christians, while we're told to expect at times slights and hurts and offenses that will take place, arrogance and selfishness at times, maybe cliques or or groups that seem exclusive at times, needs and neediness at times, all of these are true in the body of Christ at times. And yet, aren't these precisely the opportunities that we have to demonstrate the love of Christ? If all of us were perfect, We wouldn't have need to demonstrate the sacrificial love of Christ. But Christ's love is evident. Remember what Christ said. Christ said that those who follow him should be ready to love those who are difficult, even their enemies. Because someone who just loves those who love them back perfectly is doing what anyone can do. The love of Christ is perfectly displayed among us when we love each other in these difficult times, when we love each other even as fellow sinners. It's our willingness to give ourselves to one another in forgiveness, in generosity, in patience, and in prayer that defines a Christ-shaped love in the church. And so we love one another in the church. But this passage also calls for Christians to abound in love for those outside the church. And our ability to do that will largely be shaped by how well we love one another here within God's people. If you think about it this way, one commentator puts it this way. He says, the Christian community is the school in which we learn to love. Like great musicians who practice tedious drills for long hours, Christians practice their scales at home in order to sing in public. In the Christian community, love is commanded and modeled. And here is where it is to be lived out and practiced. But this does not mean that love is limited to the boundaries of the community. But if our Christian community does not live by and model the teaching of Jesus and its love for one another, how can we expect that we will do that for those who are outside? How can we expect that the world will hear or see the love of Christ? And so it is that when we are committed to one another's good in the church, when we love one another in the church, we image Jesus to one another And we also are able to display the love of Jesus to those who are around us in our communities. And so here's this first reason that Paul longs to be with the Thessalonians. Because of his great love for them. And because of his prayer that together they could increase and abound for their love for one another. And then for all. That Christ would be on display in their church, in their relationship, and to their community. Well, that's the first reason The second reason that Paul longed to be with the Thessalonians was because of his desire to build up or strengthen their faith. And again, you see this woven all throughout the passage. 
Paul notes at the beginning of chapter 3 that when he could bear being apart from the Thessalonians no longer, he sent Timothy to them, and it says in verse 2, in order to establish and exhort them in their faith. This is one desire Paul has to be with them or to have Timothy be with them to exhort them in their faith. Then Paul adds in verse 10, if you look down to verse 10, that he prays earnestly night and day that they may see one another face to face so that Paul could supply what is lacking in your faith. That is to correct or fill in gaps in their doctrinal understanding of their faith or in their ethical practice as they lived out their faith in their lives together. And then Paul closes his prayer in verse 13 with the request that God would establish their hearts blameless in holiness before God at the coming of Jesus. So each of these statements all throughout this passage expresses Paul's deep desire to encourage the Thessalonians in their faith, to exhort them, to build them up in their faith. And I want you to notice how many times Paul ties his ability or Timothy's ability to build them up in their faith with being together face to face. You see that several times in this passage. And I think this is particularly noteworthy because remember that Paul is writing this letter to the Thessalonians that is inspired by God. This letter that Paul writes will become part of scripture and will encourage and establish the faith of believers for thousands of years. And yet Paul says, well, God works through letters. It's not the same as being together face to face. Well, God can certainly use anything from Zoom calls and everything else for believers to encourage one another. Paul desires to be face to face. He desires Timothy to be with them, that we can exhort and establish one another in the way that God calls us to. Because it's when we are together, it's when we're living life in fellowship with one another, that we can see the temptations and the dangers, the the sufferings and the fears, the needs that one another have and truly encourage one another in our faith. Paul says that he sent Timothy, and he uses the words to establish them and to exhort them in their faith. And this word for to establish them in their faith has the idea of to make something stable that needs support. That's how Paul thinks about encouraging the Thessalonians' faith, to to make something stable that needs support. You know, when we first started this quarantine period, my boys were in the middle of making popsicle stick bridges in their Wednesday night clubs down at the other end of the building with Dan Rogers and their other leaders. And so when the quarantine started, I proposed a, uh, a task or a challenge to our, our, our family, which turned out to be quite expensive for me. And my proposal was this, that we would try to make these popsicle stick bridges at home Uh, And it wasn't going to be a competition, but we would make several and just see how good of a bridge we could build. And I would offer a family fun night, either a movie night or a pizza night or an ice cream night, for every 50 pounds that the best bridge could hold. I thought, okay, well, I could do this. I can do a couple of you know, a couple of family fun nights, and so we were we were making these bridges, and, and Drew and I were the most interested in, in the process. And as we were making them, I think the way Paul describes this really fits what we were doing in our bridge building. We would look for weak spots and try to to build up or strengthen in that weak spot. And where I'd have my triangles on my bridges, I added supports to try to strengthen the triangles. There was one part where the bridge was sagging a little bit, and so we added strength there. We're looking for these areas that needed to be strengthened. And I think that process is exactly what Paul's talking about here when he talks about supporting something that needs to be strengthened. 
I think this describes how we can encourage one another. When we see our lives sagging in an area, we encourage and strengthen that area. When we see a potential weak spot, we go to our brothers and sisters and encourage them in that area. We proactively encourage and build one another up so we'll be ready when heavy burdens in life come. Just like we were doing that with our bridges, that's what we're called to do for one another. Well, our efforts paid off. I don't actually have enough weight at my house to figure out how much uh, our bridge can hold. I ended up sitting on the bridge with books piled in my hand. So we were right or close. We were probably over 175 pounds and the bridge showed no signs of being weak at all. So I paid out for a couple of fun nights. Maybe when this is over, we can get more weight and see how they really worked. But Paul and Timothy's efforts also paid off with the Thessalonians because it says that their exhortation encouraged led that young church to continue steadfast in their faith and in their love for one another. That's what we're called to do. And I wonder if I could ask you to stop and think for a minute. Stop and think for a minute of of someone you know who embodies this picture of encouraging and establishing us in our faith. Can you think of someone who has done that for you over the years? As I think back over my life, I can think of several men and women who, not maybe in grand ways, but each in small ways, prayed for me when I needed prayer, confronted me lovingly when my understanding of something needed to be corrected or my life was showing a weakness or a sin that I wasn't aware of. Others who motivated me to live with greater zeal for Christ because of their own passion for the gospel. These are the people who live out this pattern of Christian fellowship and strengthen us in our faith. And my prayer is that our church, that Westminster Presbyterian Church, would be a church filled with faith establishers of people who will encourage one another and strengthen one another in each of these ways so that we would stand fast together for Christ. Note in this passage as a a final comment that in in chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, Paul says that he's particularly concerned to establish the Thessalonians' faith because of the afflictions that they were facing. And isn't it true that when we're facing suffering, that's often a key time when we need others to strengthen us in our faith. And I I would just comment that notice again, we've talked about suffering almost every single week in Thessalonians. Every week, Paul brings back again and again the role that afflictions play in the life of the Christian. In fact, here, Paul says that he told the Thessalonians that if they were to come to faith in Christ, they were destined for suffering. He says he told them that with their faith would come suffering. We don't need to go over this ground again. We've covered in in recent weeks. But I think Paul adds a further and important note in verse 5 for us. Namely, when he says that Satan often uses suffering in our life to tempt us to give ground in our faith. And this is, of course, exactly what Jesus warned us in his parable of the sower as well. You remember the different kinds of seed that the sower planted, and one of them fell on rocky ground. And Jesus says, this is the seed that immediately springs up with joy in its faith in Christ, but then troubles and trials come, and they wither and fall away. This is how Satan often works to tempt us to give ground in our faith. 
But even though Satan is sure to use these difficulties to tempt us to abandon our faith or to indulge in the pleasures of the world to cope with our difficulties instead of drawing near to Christ, God, on the other hand, uses these things in our lives. And he uses our fellow believers to strengthen us and build us up and so help us keep our eyes fixed on the coming victory we have at the return of Jesus Christ. Well, all this is wrapped up in Paul's desire to be with the Thessalonians. He desires to be with them that he might build up and strengthen their faith. That's the second thing that should characterize our Christian fellowship together. Well, finally, let's look at the third reason that Paul longed to be with the Thessalonians. And really, this third reason is just the result of the first two or the goal that Paul had in these first two. The third reason Paul desired to be with the Thessalonians is because it is a great joy to see others standing fast in their faith. And this is the heart and soul of Paul's desire to see and hear from the Thessalonians. This is why he desired to build them up in their faith. This is an expression of his love for them because it was his joy and his crown to see them standing fast for their faith. Look at how Paul puts it in verse 19 of chapter 2. He says he desires to come to them. Why? He says, I desire to come to you again and again for what is our hope or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. In chapter 3, verse 8, Paul puts it this way. He says, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Paul's joy, his glory, his hope, in some all of his life rests on this thing, seeing the Thessalonians stand fast for their faith in Christ. Now, maybe this seems a little bit hyperbolic. Really, Paul, your entire life is depending on this? And Paul, really, your, your whole joy and hope at the coming of Jesus is the Thessalonians? I thought our hope and joy at the coming of Christ was Christ. Uh, it seems like maybe this is, this is a little bit off here. But I think Paul seems to be saying several things that are all rooted in this one key fact. Paul had staked his hope on Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of the world. And Paul had given his life to God's calling to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to bring the gospel to them that they might be saved. And at the last day, when Jesus returns, the Thessalonians' faith will be the fruit of Paul's ministry that brings glory to God. What will bring glory to God in Paul's life? It's the Thessalonians' faith. They're the fruit of his ministry. What will lead God to say to Paul, well done, good and faithful servant? It's his declaration of the gospel and seeing the fruit of that. And I think Paul, what Paul is saying here is where would his hope and his glory and his joy be if all fell away and there was no fruit to indicate that Jesus was actually a great savior at work in people's lives? But on the contrary, of course, Paul's greatest joy, Paul's hope is established. His joy and glory in Christ are upheld. Indeed, he can live if the Thessalonians are standing fast, demonstrating the power of God's Spirit and the preserving grace of Christ in their lives. He glories in Christ. He can live in his joy and hope in Christ when he sees the fruit of Christ's work through him, that the Thessalonians stand fast for their faith. But I think if we stop to think about it, isn't it such a joy and an encouragement for all of us 
when we see believers stand fast for their faith in Christ? Don't we all know something of the joy and hope and glory of seeing others stand fast in their faith? As one one commentator put it, he said, to hear of the endurance and faith of other believers is life imparting for us. It, It encourages us that our own faith too is staked on a God who fulfills his promises and who sustains his people to the end. This is this is what we feel, I think, when, when we are watching an interview with, with players on a sports team after they've won a championship. And instead of glorying in the championship they won, they start by declaring their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. As we see men and women surrounded by wealth and fame and all that the world says is the pinnacle of what we should be aiming for, as we see them first give attention to Jesus Christ, it's encouraging to us. This is what we feel, I think, when we hear that, that children who grew up in our church have gone off to college, have, have stepped into the world, and they've sought out active participation in the church. They're standing fast for Christ and, and have chosen to make their faith their own and are living for him. That's encouraging to us. It's what we feel when we see believers living with diligent holiness and reliance on scripture and prayer. We know how easily life distracts us. We know how easy it is for sin to tug at our hearts. And so when we see fellow believers living and walking through the the mundane routines of life, focused on Christ, seeking holiness in him, and setting us an example, we're encouraged. This is what we hear feel, I think, when we see fellow believers who endure suffering and remain steadfast through that suffering. This is why I think so many of us find encouragement from stories from the mission field of missionaries who endure great suffering and yet are steadfast for Christ and in fact see fruit for the gospel. In the face of suffering, the gospel's going forth, that encourages us. I think so many of you, like me, have been so encouraged by our Sunday school class on walking with God through pain and suffering because we are hearing the testimonies of our brothers and sisters in Christ among us the, the Sidebothams and, and Kelly Waller and the McWilliams and the, McIn- um, and the Brackbills and the Stalls today, we, we hear what God has brought them through. We hear how God has sustained them in suffering. It's not that these brothers and sisters have all the answers. What they have is a demonstration that God sustains them. And that's encouraging to us. See, all of this, I think, is is what I would call the invigorating joy of corporate standing fast. When we see God's people together standing fast for him, that gives us joy and hope and strength. And this is what Paul was feeling in this passage as well. He loved the Thessalonians, and he prayed that as they were together, that love would increase and abound. He desired to be with them so that he could build up and strengthen their faith. And he desired that because of the joy of seeing them stand fast for Christ, their Savior. Well, as we come to the end of this section in 1 Thessalonians, perhaps we could reflect back for a minute over these first three chapters. Maybe we could reflect on just a few thoughts to close. I think Paul has given us such a clear description of what the community of God's people ought to look like, both individually and corporately in these chapters. He's given us, if you will, a target to shoot for, together as a church 
and as individual believers. Individually, Paul showed us that we are to expect suffering and trials that Satan will use to oppose the gospel and to tempt us to give way to despair. But these sufferings are not just obstacles to overcome. They are blessings because these sufferings demonstrate our union and fellowship with Jesus in his suffering, which in turn guarantee that we will have fellowship and union with him in glory. Individually, we are called to stand fast, to turn from idols, to serve the living God, and to wait for Christ's coming in glory. Corporately, together as a church, we're called to bear testimony to Christ such that the surrounding area around us hears the gospel as a trumpet blast from our lives and from our speech. We heard that in chapter 1. We're called as a, as a church to intentionally and deeply love one another with an overflowing love that mirrors the life of Christ Jesus. And we're called to strengthen one another and establish one another in our faith so that we can grow together in grace and stand fast until the day when Christ returns. These are the lessons that God gives us here from 1 Thessalonians. And when Paul sees that example, when he sees this happening in the lives of the Thessalonians, Paul's natural response is joy and thanks and praise to God. And that should be our response as well. Because as Paul acknowledges in his prayer at the end of this passage here in verses 11 through 13, it's God our Father and it's our Lord Jesus Christ who works this in our lives. It's him that increases our love for one another. It's him that establishes our hearts for his coming. It's him that worked these things that Paul so longs for and prays for. It's our God and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who make us ready and preserve us until the return of Jesus. Praise and thanks to him. Let's pray together. Father, how I thank you that you are the one leading us through the events of our life. You, Father, are the ones who are increasing our love for one another. You are the ones who establish our hearts and preserve us and our faith through suffering and difficulty. You are the one who will strengthen our joy together as we wait for your return. Father, I pray that you would make these things true in our lives individually, and I pray that you would make these things true of us as a church. I pray that Westminster Presbyterian Church would be a trumpet blast of the gospel, an example of the love of Jesus Christ here in Lancaster County and to the ends of the world. Pray this for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit. Westminster Pulpit.